2: Welcome back, Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Hello, David Dahl. It's good to see you in the producer's chair. I am Seth Liebson. The phone number is 602-508-0960. Hello, Bill, to my right. The Pulitzer Prizes came out and were announced yesterday. And Alex Berenson makes an interesting point. Quote, funny story, he writes. The 2023 Pulitzers came out. Guess what wasn't awarded? Yes, for the second straight year, nothing COVID-related won. The biggest story of the last three years and no prizes. It's almost as if journalism is ashamed of itself, close quote, as if. For what it's worth, I recognized none of the Pulitzer Prize winners. There is, as you can imagine, a lot of writing that was rewarded for topics on racism. Most of the winners were from that genre, and the General Nonfiction Award went to a book, a biography of George Floyd, of course. The fetish with racism in America has become exactly that, a fetish. The etymology of the word fetish is a calc, a, a loan word from the Portuguese, meaning sorcery and alluring charm. It is also, as most sorcery and charm is, cheap. It might also be, as I think it is, dangerous and harmful, psychologically harmful individually and sociologically harmful, extrapolated out over and across society. But this is where the media and most education is today. Everything at the least ra- at the least racist moment in our history, in the least racist country of the world, everything is about race. Here's just a little of our trajectory that has long been forgotten. Take the year 1958. Almost half of white Americans polled by Gallup said that, In the language they used at the time, if colored people came to live next door, they would be likely to move. Half of white Americans said that. By 1978, only 13% of white Americans said that. And by 1997, the proportion had fallen to 1%. That's only one measure of racism's profound decline in America. Friendship is another. Take 1964. A mere 18% of white Americans claimed to have a friend who was black. Four decades later, Gallup found that the proportion of interracial friendships had more than quadrupled. 82% of whites said they had close non-white friends and 88% of blacks reported having close friends who were not black. Now, from San Francisco to, I guess, everything the press likes to pick and pluck at, America's legacy of slavery is what keeps being exploited here. What's most interesting to me is that in 2008 and 2012, for a country that is so systemically racist, it wasn't anywhere to be found. It's been invented since 2008 would have been the year when an African-American beat the second most famous political leader in the world for the presidency here in America, a war hero. And as I said, probably outside of George Bush the most famous recognizable political leader and American in the world, John McCain. It's actually difficult to overstate how famous John McCain was, regardless of your opinions about him. And he lost the presidency by 10 million votes in six states against a first-term senator unknown to the world four years earlier and an African-American. And that man, Barack Obama, won again against another hugely famous American and Caucasian in 2012, and it's not as if McCain or Mitt Romney were exactly seen as extremists. But somehow now the racism in America is so steeped in our DNA. We are a systemically racist country soaked and saturated with implicit bias. And as I say, the media finds this narrative exploitable. And of course, why would they not? The Pulitzer committee rewards it. Let's have some honest talk about this. Yes, America had its sins when it came to slavery, but it wasn't all of America and it wasn't even the larger part of America. It was the minority part of America, both in population and states. Yes, America had its sins, but unlike other countries, it was among the first to expiate them. And oddly, still one of the few countries blamed for those sins, while those who sinned much worse and for a lot longer period of time seem to escape the same opprobrium. This includes African countries, and it includes Arab countries. I'm grateful to Dennis Prager for writing some of this up, as I shall borrow from something he wrote, which is this. Cornell professor Sandra Green, a black scholar of African history, writes, quote, slavery in the United States ended in 1865, but in West Africa it was not legally ended until 1875, and then it stretched on unofficially until the breakout of World War I. Close quote. Here's how systematically racist we are. As Dennis writes, four million black people have emigrated to the United States since the 1960s and tens of millions more would if they could. Are they all fools? Why would anyone move to a country that is systemically bigoted against them? Did any Jews emigrate to Germany in the 1930s? Blacks have emigrated to the United States because they know what Ayon Hersi Ali, the black woman who fled her homeland of Somalia and who now writes and lectures in America, they know what she knows. Quote, what the media do not tell you is that America is the best place on the planet to be black, female, gay, trans or what have you. Close quote. Here's what I think we need to appreciate better. We think it a legal as well as moral crime to convict the innocent, and it is equally a legal and moral crime to exonerate the guilty. But this is what we do here as a matter of sociology, pedagogy, and journalism. And yet this is what we reward, and we wonder about the anxiety-ridden, depression, and down-market view of ourselves and our country. I actually think it's cruel and a form of sociological, if not psychological, abuse for our media, aided and abetted by our education system as it is, to keep telling and teaching us how bad a place we live in. We know the effects of telling a child how bad he or she is. In other words, we know how to make a child fail and be filled with anxiety and other psychological, social problems and disabilities, continually telling him or her she's a failure. Tell him or her there's something wrong with him or her. Tell the child they are defective. Or deficient. How is it any different when extrapolated across an entire education system and echo chamber in the media when pushed and perpetrated into the larger population about this country? How we teach and treat children is, I think, a pretty good way to think about all this, even as we are discussing adults, as we have in our teaching profession as much as we have in our journalistic profession, graduates of several decades of politicalized education and schooling. We result with what doctors Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang say are children in adult bodies. Children, of course, don't usually start off with negative and unnatural views, either psychologically or even what we might call politically or racially. But you can, over time and with enough teaching, make them that way, and you can make a country absorb and adopt such thinking the same way as well if you do it hard, often, and long enough. Professor Hadley Arcus was here last week making the point about the natural inclinations and views of children before they are submitted to the conversions of adult philosophies. He put it, citing C.S. Lewis, that the moral rudiments of natural right inhere naturally in children. They don't naturally think in racial terms. They do naturally understand notions of fairness. They don't naturally lack in self-esteem. But we convert all that, don't we, about themselves and about their country. As Professors Rogers and Hammerstein noted as far back ago as 1949, and by the way, won a Pulitzer for drama back when the Pulitzer Prize was a serious thing, as they wrote, racism is not born in you. It happens after you're born. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made, people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight. To hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. And we do that here. Don't we? Interesting ages there. Six, seven and eight with to and about children and in turn with to and about the understandings of their country. A country so awful and so systemically racist that the major news story of the week is that we don't know how we are going to deal with tens of thousands of people from other countries who plan on flooding into this one over and against the law and at great risk to themselves. Okay, America failed at some things. And for some time, but only parts of America, and the majority kept trying to redress those failures. Yet we are now defined and rewarded by defining ourselves by exclusively those failures. And again, we wonder why there is so much anxiety, mental health deficiency, violence, disinhibition and dissociative behavior and feeling here, especially in our youth and young adult population. And why there is so much self anesthetizing. The great child psychologist Haim Genot wrote in his book Between Parent and Child that mishandled and over exaggerated reprimands in failure cause anxiety in children. So too a society, especially as it is increasingly governed by newer and newer generations of young adults brought up in an environment that teaches as much. But doctor Genot writes Failure at a task does not have to make a child feel inadequate, not if appropriately taught. I wonder, really, I plead. We take that instruction up for ourselves and our society as the road we are on, one of taught and learned inadequacy and failure, is a road of increasing depression and anxiety and that road leads to only one destination, self-destruction. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Well, in a major uh, spoiler to the mainstream media, which would like the lead story and the big story today to be that the federal jury in New York did side with E. Jean Carroll, the woman who was suing Donald Trump for defamation and battery, the jury did side with her. Um, they came in with their unanimous verdict today. Uh, awarding $5 million in damages to her. Donald Trump and his attorney, Joe uh, Tacopina, say they will be appealing. That is a big deal. The story um, uh, wants itself to be the biggest deal possible because that's what the news media will thrive on, uh, this uh, unique judgment against former President Trump. But there may be a bigger story with far more lasting consequences. Uh, Tucker Carlson has today announced a new media partnership where he says he will be relaunching the show people were used to for the past six years, and he'll be doing it on Twitter. Uh, The details of which are uh, not fully sketched out or revealed to us yet, but obviously he has made some interesting kind of deal with Elon Musk to do this, and he said stay tuned more soon. Evidently, also to get out of this kind of non-compete contract he had with Fox, he is foregoing the money that Fox was uh, paying him, which I think was uh, about 25 million bucks. So um, we'll see what the bigger story is today or tomorrow. The judgment against Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson's announcement of his new venture Uh, on Twitter His two-minute announcement is, uh, right now, last I did it over the commercial break, um, the recipient of 3.3 million views. 3.3 million people watched that, and I suspect by the end of this show or by the end of the day, that number will uh, increase, perhaps, uh, by double or triple or quadruple uh, 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 increases, and What will be interesting to me, too, is this. You want to know what won't get 3.3 million views today? You want to know what won't get 6 million views or 9 million views or 12 million views or 18 million views? The Washington Post, The New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, all combined. They won't get that. By the end of this very broadcast, I'm guessing Tucker already will have. Let's go to uh, Jack in Phoenix. Hello, Jack.
3: Hello, Seth.
2: Thanks for taking the call. Thank you.
0: I was listening
3: to your monologue, and you ended up pointing out that they're on a path to self-destruction. And, you know, my sense just watching over the last few years of how many young people have been committing these mass murders that we, we're we not talking about the other elephant in the room, and that is how we're training them through video games and pretty violent movies uh, to have a complete disregard for human life. And they end up acting it out, you know, with a uh, semi-automatic rifle. Right?
2: yeah uh listen uh, the violence uh that is uh available to and absorbed by children is no question a huge uh concern. Um, the line between uh watching it as a one off and an action is a little bit harder to delineate, but there is no question that all of the social and psychological research is showing the link between uh, addictions to social media, addictions to things like Instagram and Instagram, things like TikTok and TikTok, um, the social media effects on our youth's mental health, increasing of not only anxiety, um, increases not only of depression, increases not only of disinhibition syndrome, and yes, then of course we act surprised when they do act out. I was talking yesterday about the death of Newton Minow, who in 1961 was already pointing out this problem in his The Vast Wasteland speech about the offerings on television in 1961 What we and, and how dangerous they were, if not tamed. What we wouldn't do for that kind of danger today, right? What we wouldn't do to have back the kinds of things Fred Rogers was warning about in 1998 when he uh, gave that famous speech uh, at, the, uh, at the induction at the Television Hall of Fame. We play that speech from time to time, and he gave that speech in front of all the moguls and all the fancy people in Hollywood about the difference uh, you get from a child that is raised on watching violence and senseless murder, as you put it, Jack, Um, versus one who watches things that we know do, in fact, nurture the soul. We have known about this, how to upbring and how to rear children, from at least biblical or ancient Greek times. We have known that. We have dispensed with it. And then we sit around and wonder how it is that uh, we don't get virtue and enterprise and normal mental health outcomes and normal behaviors from a society that not only builds men without chests, but a society that is seemingly set on disrupting and disappearing all of the natural distinctions and natural elements that we know are important for the nurturing of the soul and the ennobling of the brain. Jack, absolutely right. I would not give kids access to social media. I would not allow it. Uh, And I then would go one step further because when we're talking about all the mental health problems of our youth, we actually have a mental health crisis with our adults, too. And the link between their addictions to social media and their mental health deficits are just as clear. It's just that we don't talk about them. But the one thing that's important when we do talk about them and why I think we should talk about them as much as we talk about youth mental health is who the hell's teaching these kids. If there weren't adult problems in this country, there wouldn't be child problems. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website there, great place to reach out to him, is grandcanyonplanning.com. He is also the host of his own radio show, Heard Here Every Saturday Morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. How are you, John? Fantastic, Seth. All good. I don't know if you just saw this announcement. Just It's going to be big. It might be big for Twitter tomorrow, but uh-huh. uh, Tucker Carlson just announced he's going to be doing his show on Twitter. Big, I did just see that. Yeah. Big. Yes. I imagine I imagine that'll be good for the stock. I imagine it will
4: be. It seems like it would be. It, yeah. He I, was a big draw for Fox, that's yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I was saying, uh, you know, already this afternoon, three and a half million people have already watched his two-minute announcement of that. By the time mm-hmm. my show is over here, you know, that, that number will probably <laughs> have increased yes, yeah, three yeah, or more. fourfold, yeah. which will be larger than <laughs> anything CNN will get throughout the whole day. So
4: <laughs> their write-up months.
2: of it is pretty nasty, as you can imagine. I can imagine. Anyway, uh, we don't know how nasty the meeting was at the White House today, but it did not end in a resolution of the debt ceiling debate,
4: right? No, and I I, I wouldn't imagine that it would have. This is the first time that they've had an opportunity to, you know, bend the president's ear, I guess, on this. And uh, from what this particular article is stating, that uh, the president really didn't give in to anything, wouldn't commit to anything other than they didn't want, want to have anything attached to the debt ceiling. Um, I, I would imagine that both sides realize that the default, the risk of default is probably something that should be off the table. Uh, and, you know, in, in all instances, they've always raised the debt ceiling. But anytime we get to this, this point, uh, it, it's certainly concerning. And I've got, you know, many of my clients who have you know, I've talked, and, talked to over the past week or two, and this is a concern, and I, I think it should be a concern for everyone out there. Uh, this is something that uh, would have an unbelievable adverse effect on not only our economy and our country but the world if if we were to default on on our debt One of the interesting things
2: and it's, it 's kind you kind of have to read it twice to pick up on this is that uh, this meeting between Kevin McCarthy. And Joe Biden, they say, was the first time they have talked since uh, February. Right. And it seems to me that uh, this first meeting might have been avoided and been more productive if uh, they were. uh, And I know it's not a they. I know if it was if the White House were willing to have talked or even opened negotiations with the House of Representatives at some point between. February and today, it's sure. not as if we didn't know this was coming.
4: Yeah, and it's you know it's been talked about that uh, the president was not meeting with the speaker, and That's right. um, you know, it, it, so it, it's common knowledge that they had no intention of meeting. They didn't want to meet. They didn't want to talk about anything other than you know um, what their agenda is. And it's unfortunate. And, and again, I know it's politics, and I, I'd probably be very bad at it, Seth, uh, if I if I was a, 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 a po- in politics, but. Uh, it's frustrating, and I think it's frustrating to most Americans out there. They don't like to see this. They don't like this uncomfortable feeling. Uh, they don't like uh, what they're hearing, and uh, they would like to have a resolution to not only this but to many other areas. Yeah, they don't like
2: it. uncertainty. Yeah. No one can live with uncertainty. That's, uh, that's also true of the markets, I'm going yeah. to you guess. You can't
4: make decisions. It's yeah. hard to make investment decisions or uh, decisions about your own personal finance when these types of issues are uh, you know, out there. Now, something tells me,
2: because it just feels like we have been through this so many times before, as you and I have discussed, that this will probably resolve one way or the other um, by maybe this time next week, maybe, and certainly by probably the end of next week. And my guess is, my guess is, it's, it's going to resolve with the Republicans not getting what they want, since they don't have the Senate. Uh, to apply the added pressure to the White House that an otherwise powerful Senate majority leader could do. We don't have that here. Um, So I'm going to guess that uh, the Republicans are going to probably take it on the chin uh, in this resolution. And and the other thing I'm going to suggest is that when we look at the plan they have offered, do people realize how moderate the plan is? It's to Uh, have 2022 spending. Yeah.
4: No, I know. They've extended it for a year, they uh, and they've uh, put some restrictions in there for some of the other um, uh, programs out there. Like, they want to make sure that if you're going to collect some type of government program that you really should qualify for it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty reasonable. It seems to be. Uh, you know, I haven't read every detail of it, but just on the surface it looks fairly reasonable to and me. And spending levels
2: last year? Yeah. It wasn't as if that we—it yeah, we isn't as if that was a
4: surface, you know—that the, 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 there was a deficit in spending levels. No, there no, was a deficit were, in spending. Yeah. We weren't, uh, you know, yeah. wanting for more. Right. Thanks, John. Ah, oh, you bet. Securities and Advisory Services Office of Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finman and and an investment advisor, Grant Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC, an affiliate. We should talk about what it means if we do default. Can we do tomorrow. that tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And look
2: at that—you did all that with time left over. All right. Thank you. All right, John. Talk Bye-bye. to you tomorrow. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Doug is in carefree. Hello, Doug. Hi, Seth. How are you doing? today? I'm well. How are you?
3: Good, good. Um, um, so, a, a couple things. So your monologue. Um, why, why race bait? Well, um, if if you want to create the ult- the penultimate false flag. Um, you know, this, this, uh, fomented race war between the identity politics subgroups, then you have to, you know, you can't let the trend of racial harmony continue. You know, you have to figure out a way, you know, and so between Soros and others, you know, who funded the Ferguson, you know, the post Ferguson, um, uh, process. Uh, which led to the Ferguson effect, which led to more crime, which led to more uh, disillusionment and discomfiture among you know, the black community and the ignoring of black-on-black crime, um, and then the, the advent of the summer 20 uh, BLM rioting and Antifa uh, shenanigans. Um, you're, you're, foment, you're fomenting the thing that you need, to cause the chaos that you claim that you're the only ones that can solve you know or or end the chaos, and so it's really insidious, it's really nasty. um I've read academics that say that there are between six and eighteen thousand additional black homicides since the Ferguson event, and uh what was the other dude's name um
2: George Floyd?
3: got beat up, yes, yes, sorry. George Floyd who wasn't murdered but okay Derek Chauvin a uh, 22 uh, year sentence for murdering the guy but if anyways I'm not going to go there anyways so so you need you need a bad you know you need you, you can't have harmony 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 leads to something other than you know political power
2: no you need you know? a crisis you and, need and, agitation you need frenzy that's what you need That's what you need. You need an agitated population to uh, engage in um, revolution. That's that's exactly what you need. The last thing you can have is an America or any country where the people are well-educated, happy, and well-fed, things that the wealthiest country in the history of the world should be able to do and seemingly can't because of these kinds of divisions that keep being foisted upon us. And look, here's, here's an interesting this, – this, this might shock you. It might not. You seem to have a pretty calm understanding of a lot of this, Doug. But uh, the term – the frequency in the use of the term racist in American newspapers since 1970 has increased on average about 700%. 700 percent. And if you look at the analysis I'm looking at right now, you will notice that the trend lines, whether it's the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, from about 1970 to about 2010 are fairly flat and fairly steady. The the number of times the term racist or racism is used. It goes from 2010 to 2020 like like a hockey stick. Like a hockey stick, right. and 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 I'm and, and, the been, and the frequency has been and the frequency has raised about seven hundred percent. I'm
3: surprised it's not higher, um, and 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 so, you know, you said I have a calm understanding of this. It's because this was my job. My job was to sow discord, you know, in our adversaries, so it would be easier for us to defeat them militarily, you know, because there's four elements of national power: diplomacy information, military, and economic. And so if you, if you can push you know, on those levers and cause problems and cause chaos, you then you know, create a, a weakened adversary who then can be you know, pushed and then eventually succumb to you know, your military endeavors. And so I, I sent you an email about <clears throat> something that the Biden administration has stood up underneath the office of the Director of National Intelligence, called the Foreign Malign Influence Center. And it's basically the Ministry of Truth. And I feel a little sheepish talking about it because some of the concepts in there were things that I did while I was on active duty. Um, you know, I create, not personally created, but I was part of a process that created a program called the Countering Adversary Use of the Internet. And one of our, our kind of seminal issues was countering malign influence. And so... But but prior to 2013, you know, it was all directed at foreign audiences, you know, and it was directed to foment dissent and dissension and disruption in, among foreign audiences. But since the Smoot-Hawley Modernization Act of 2013, which essentially allowed the U.S. government to use propaganda against Americans, um, almost every agency has some aspect of this Malign Influence Center kind of process.
2: Smoot-Hawley?
3: The Sm- the Sm- no, the Smoot-Hawley Act was repealed in 2013. But now the federal government, at any level, including the U.S. military, can use propaganda against the U.S. Uh, the, the US public. And, uh, and so it, that was illegal prior to 2013. Um, under the 1952 Smoot-Hawley Act, but Smoot-Hawley Modernization Act of 2013 repealed all Are that. Are you sure
2: Smoot-Hawley's what you mean? The Tariff Act?
3: Um, Smith-Munt. Sorry. Okay. Smith-Munt.
2: Okay. That's okay. Okay. <laughs>
3: sorry. Smith-Munt. Okay. Smith-Munt. Yes. Right. Smoot-Hawley. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, I was reading another article. Okay.
2: I, I read too much. <laughs> all right. it gets, it gets or watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off with Ben Stein. Remember, he asks about the Smoot-Hawley Act. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> No. Sorry. no, I get so, it, Doug. We so, have a, we have a ministry of truth in this country. We have a big some of some of it. I mean, what do you think the disinformation? What do you think the disinformation boards were all about? What do you think it was all about when Barack Obama gave a speech at Stanford on uh, on the influences of uh, the influences of of false reporting, you know, and fake news? And a week later, we learn about the creation of disinformation boards within the administration can you think of anything more orwellian than the government having disinformation boards that it's the government's job to be checking for what the media is reporting on it's totally upside down the point of the media the point of the first amendment is to check on what the government is up to and if you want to get a sense of how malign all this is i think that was a word you used it's a good word how malign all of this is, Doug, if you want to get a sense, look at what all the, in the 51 intelligence officials did uh, in weaponizing for political purposes and use their security clearances to lord over the, the entire country a false story that led to the censorship of a story that would have directly impacted the presidential election. That's what they thought they could use their security clearances for they thought they could because, so far, they've gotten away with it. They thought they could, in other words, because they could. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. With Bank failure, stock market, stock market volatility, and a possible recession coming. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? It's an investment in a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Enter Y ReFi. Y ReFi is locally based. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the one oh one. I've been there. No one will ask you to sign anything, no sales pitch. And when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then com, Or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34. 888-Y-REFI-34. Steve's in Tempe. Hello, Steve. Hello, Seth. How are you?
1: good hey and just to add to what you and Doug were just talking about isn't it interesting how you know speaking of disinformation and uh and I know Doug was talking about it in a lot more elaborate uh in a lot more elaborate factors but uh, isn't it interesting how everything that they accuse our side of doing they're doing themselves they're they're found out to be doing themselves and i'm talking about the um you know, accusing us of dealing with Russia, the Trump, the Trump Russia.
2: Yes, we thing, call this uh, projection, political projection. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it, you know, don't kid yourself. That's that's definitely a something that they're doing as they're, as it relates to to a. I don't want to say a manual, but uh, it, it's definitely something that is it has proven been proven effective for them to to, to date, but. That is something that they've been doing for a long time, and uh, I know I'm just as fed up with it as, as you and Doug are, so I know. I'm just sick about how they're, you know, what they're doing.
2: Yep. And, I mean, I just keep coming back to the same thing over and over again, Steve, that uh, the only way we're going to end it is with a political solution. And we've got to no get quite. our act together and, uh, you know, start winning some elections. Seriously. No I quite. mean, I, if I no read quite. one more story about how, how awful, how bad, what the prospects are and how loserdom the D- Republican Party is, I'm just going to scream. I'm just going to scream. I mean, it's just it's so depressing to see a party that um, doesn't seem to know what the Democrats are up to. How many times do we have to get beaten by them? How many times do we have to get beaten by them at these games that we should have been able to figure out a long time ago? It's not that hard. It really isn't. Recruit good candidates. Make the argument. Attract people that are outside of your usual audience and go out.